ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to the fourth season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, murder below the nat line. For photos and additional information, please go to AJC.com slash breakdown. Follow us on Twitter at AJC Courts and at AJC Breakdown. The next thing you know, Bunyan said he pulled out the 44 caliber and squeezed the trigger. I just get angry, then I get sad, then I get angry, and I get sad. Because I don't really understand, you know, how people say that they don't want people to be in prison for stuff that they didn't do. He is by no means a Boy Scout. There's no question that the guy has done wrong in his life, but I don't think he committed this crime. Perhaps the judge presiding over the Devanya Inman murder trial said it best when he remarked from the bench, I was trying to explain this to another judge in the last couple of days about how we heard three days of impeachment of a person's own witness, and then impeachment of that impeached witness, and then an impeachment of the impeacher of the impeached witness. Well, Georgia is the peach state. We'll talk a lot about those um, impeachable witnesses, but first, a word about the jury in the Devanya Inman murder trial. Inman was accused of shooting Donna Brown, the night manager at the Taco Bell in tiny Adel, Georgia, as she left the store with the night's proceeds. The state was seeking the death penalty against Inman, and that has a peculiar impact on a jury. The, the United States Supreme Court has said that in order to qualify a jury in a death penalty case, the juror has to be what's referred to as death qualified. That's Atlanta defense lawyer Don Samuel. He's written books on criminal case law and serves as Breakdown's resident legal expert. The basic rule is this. A juror has to be able to say under oath, I am not so conscientiously opposed to the death penalty that I would never impose it. But the juror also has to say, but I'm not so much in favor of the death penalty, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, whatever, that I would always impose it in a murder case. Samuel says this creates a dynamic that only shows up in a capital case. Jurors who oppose the death penalty also tend to hold the state to a higher burden of proof as to guilt or innocence. But a jury on which everyone says they can vote for the death penalty? Jurors who are more likely to impose the death penalty or more likely to be law and order type jurors 
and therefore jurors who are more likely to vote for conviction. And there have been you know, studies done that a death-qualified juror is more likely uh, to vote for guilt in the first place than a, than a jury that is comprised, at least in part, of people who are conscientiously opposed to the death penalty. A jury willing to impose the death penalty doesn't always do that. But if you're a death-seeking prosecutor with a death-qualified jury, you still have to feel pretty good about your chances, right? You've just put 12 kindred spirits in the box. The trial began in June 2001, high nat season in Adel. Here are a couple of nuggets from the lawyer's opening statements. As I told you last time, we don't have audio from the trial. The tapes disappeared sometime in the last 16 years. This is from the opening of Tim Edson, the chief assistant district attorney. There is really no physical evidence in this case, he said. Whoever had thought this out had planned it quite well. But the evidence, Edson promised, would be extensive. Quote, what we're asking you to do during this trial is to go down every road, go down every path, look at all the evidence. And I believe, and I know, that every road and every path shall lead back to one man. And that is the defendant, Devanya Inman, unquote. And for the defense, public defender Melinda Riles used her opening to highlight conflicts in the case. Some witnesses will say one thing. Others will say exactly the opposite. And the state's most important witnesses against Inman have an incentive to lie, she said. You're going to have to determine those conflicts. Verdict means speak the truth. It's up to y'all to speak the truth. Y'all are going to have to determine who is going to speak the truth. Yes, y'all is in the transcript. That's how we talk down here, above and below the net line, y'all. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Breakdown. I've been telling you the story of Devanya Inman and of the people working almost obsessively on his behalf. They include a Georgia State University law professor and some of her students. Prosecution testimony began with officers who responded to the scene, as it almost always does. Then the medical examiner took the stand and offered a shocking revelation. Y'all remember, I told you Donna Brown was shot through the eye in the parking lot of the Taco Bell. Well, the medical examiner testified that this mother of one was shot while she lay on the ground. In other words, an execution. Now, Let's talk about what is surely one of the most confounding pieces of evidence in the trial. A state crime lab technician testified a mask had been found in Donna Brown's car. The killer had stolen the Monte Carlo after Brown was shot. The car was driven about a mile from the Taco Bell, then dumped. When the state recovers a car used in a crime, well, you've seen CSI. They carry out a meticulous search of the vehicle inside and out lift fingerprints, maybe rip up the carpet, check for fibers, and so on. After a few days, the car was returned to Donna Brown's family. So, if there was a key piece of evidence in the car, who would have found it? The cops, right? Well, this program is called Breakdown for a reason. Someone had left a mask in the car, and the police didn't find it. Donna Brown's family did. Let's say that again. Someone left a mask in the car, the police didn't find it. The victim's family did. So, this wasn't a ski mask. It was an up-to-no-good mask, made out of sweatpants, two cut-out holes for eyes. Just to be clear, 
Nobody planted the mask in the days after the car was abandoned. The state's evidence technician said it was visible in crime scene photos, meaning it was there when the car was dumped. Later in the trial, District Attorney Bob Ellis would say the mask demonstrated the depravity of the killer. If Inman was wearing the mask, Donna Brown could not have identified him. So he didn't have to shoot her, but he decided to do so anyway, Ellis said. And don't forget that mask. You're going to hear a lot more about it. Police never recovered the gun, but the prosecution went to great lengths to show that Inman had had one. The first witness to put a gun in Inman's hand was Zachary Payne. Two weeks before the murder, Payne said, Inman showed up at his home. Payne testified. He came in pointing the gun. I don't like guns. I like Jesus better than guns. Payne said he had a pile of money on the table and was worried that Inman had come to rob him. Instead, Inman just flashed the gun and soon left. Payne described the weapon as having black tape wrapped around the pistol grip. Inman said in an interview years later that never happened. He said Payne had an axe to grind. I bought weed from him that time, and it was lace. It just, like, brought my asthma up. But I went to telling everybody in the streets that he was lacing his weed. And because of that, they said that I pointed a gun at him. You know, I ain't even kicking with him like that. I never even owned a gun now. I mean, because I just got there and I was broke. I ain't had no job or nothing. Now, remember those impeachables? Two of the state's main witnesses completely recanted the initial statements they gave to police. And get this, the prosecution still used the initial statements by the two women as part of their case against Inman, even after they took it all back. It was up to the jury to decide which version they believed. Larisha Chapman was working at the Taco Bell the night of the killing. She testified that Donna Brown told her and a co-worker to go home because she still had work to do on time cards. Brown said she would call the police for an escort when she was ready to take the night's proceeds and make a deposit at the bank. In a written statement to police, Chapman said she and her friend went outside to wait for their rides, and her friend's ride was already there. Alone in the parking lot, waiting on her boyfriend, Chapman said she put her foot on the curb to tie her shoe. She was startled by a voice that came out of the bushes. She told police she recognized the voice as Inman's. She also said she saw a man lying in the bushes, a black guy with a bald head, wearing a white tank top. The white t-shirt would become important to the prosecution's case. She identified Devon in the bushes, right? She knew that it was him, that based on his voice, I think. That's Michael Williford, a law student at Georgia State who has worked on Inman's case for more than two years. And she was absolutely certain, 100% certain, in the dark, that this was his voice, and that's, that's how she knew it was him. So, Chapman had put Inman at the scene hiding in some bushes just before the murder. But she would completely recant that statement. Before the trial, she wrote a letter to Melinda Riles, one of Inman's lawyers. At the trial, Chapman read aloud her letter to the jury. Here, we have Riles reading a slightly condensed version of Chapman's letter to her. Ms. Riles, I'm writing this letter to clear up the huge lie I told years ago. I figured I'd better write it down for evidence that I said it. I'm so glad that you came to speak with me on this situation. I, Larisha Nicole Chapman, admit that I lied on the statement I wrote about I could recognize the voice of a Mr. Inman. 
I don't even know what his voice sounds like. I've never even heard his voice before. I didn't see anyone in the bushes either. I was so tired of the whole ordeal. I told those gentlemen only what they wanted to hear. They kept pressuring me. The detectives kept calling me and the city police department and comparing my family to Miss Donna. I was sick of it, and so I lied to stop them from bothering me, and I thought it was over. I only made it worse by lying. I've got to get the truth out because I haven't been able to sleep good since I said this. I really do not know what happened, and if I did, I would tell. I haven't been able to live my normal teenage life with this on my chest. If he didn't commit this crime, I would just be so hurt if he had to die for it. I didn't see anyone because I was inside until my ride came. I was going by hearsay because I thought it was the truth. I know that's not right because I didn't know. I'll never go by these things that I hear because you never know what to believe. I would like to withdraw my statement and replace it with this one because it's the truth. I don't want to have to get on the stand and be charged with perjury because of a lie. I was young and I didn't know how to handle this kind of thing. But now, I'm sorry that I lied. Please, can you help get me off the stand and try to straighten this huge lie that I told? Riles had been working on the case for almost three years at that point. She said that letter from Larisha Chapman felt like a big break. It was relief because, you know, you've been fighting this case on a guilt-innocence thing. And I think at this point in time, you're like, hey, someone that is saying, no, it's not happening the way that the state is alleging it to have happened. It's totally, you know, something totally different occurred. Here's Michael Williford again. Joining him is fellow law student Maida Muhich. Beyond anything else, that it might have led me to think that he was innocent when, when sort of an independent third party who had testified against him and didn't seem to have a dog in the fight said, no, that was a lie. I, 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 that was pretty powerful to me. I mean, the letter is, pretty, I think, pretty powerful. Almost desperate. The recantation where she's just, I was pressured and I lied and I'm sorry and I lied and I'm sorry and I lied. Chapman's recantation must have surprised the jurors. Seriously, things like this don't happen all that often, especially in death penalty trials. Even so, Edson, the prosecutor, limited the damage by having Chapman read the statement she had written for the police, the one she had just said she made up. Edson made it clear to the jury that he believed her first statement, and he unnerved her with his last line of questioning. Edson handed Chapman a photo. I'm going to read the exchange as it appears in the official court transcript. Edson, isn't that Ms. Brown? No response from the witness. Isn't that Ms. Brown? No response from the witness. Ms. Chapman, isn't this Ms. Brown? I can't look at that. Well, Ms. Chapman, I mean, I think the fact of the matter is, if you had told somebody that night, Ms. Brown might still be alive. Told them what? Told them you saw a man in the bushes. So, you just heard it. The prosecution impeaching its own witness. And it wouldn't be the last time. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Marquetta Thomas is a complicated character in this saga. She was the first person to turn police attention to Inman. 
There was testimony that strongly implicated her in the murder, which she denies. And yes, like Chapman, she also made highly incriminating statements about Inman to the police. And then, like Chapman, she said it was all a lie. I took it the whole thing back. So they couldn't charge him with perjury, or even if they would have. I'm like, look, I just want to clear my conscience and try to help Devonya out. Like, he ain't do it. That was Marquetta Thomas when I interviewed her earlier this year at her home in North Georgia. I truly don't know what to make of Marquetta, but I do know this. By the time Inman went on trial, she appeared on the witness stand wearing a prison jumpsuit. She had been locked up on her own armed robbery charges. In that holdup, Marquetta drove a companion to a pawn shop in Moultrie, Georgia, about 25 miles west of Adel. Once they arrived, her companion walked into the pawn shop and shot a woman there four times. She survived, so what could have been a murder was an aggravated assault. The shooter left with $129. Marquetta later pleaded guilty to her role in that armed robbery and served 12 years in prison for it. Originally from Ohio, Marquetta played college basketball at a small school in southwest Georgia. When Devanya Inman arrived on the scene, Marquetta was living with her two sisters in a three-bedroom brick house in a cul-de-sac in the Adel neighborhood of Delwood Acres. We were roommating because we all had small children, and we didn't believe in abusing welfare and food stamps or whatnot, so we all just kind of worked and stayed together to split bills three ways so we all could have you know, extra money to supply, I guess, for our kids. So we kind of stuck together in that. And as well, I worked at Family Dollar and Waffle House, and my sisters and them worked at uh, ADL Grocery, some type of warehouse or something like that. And then they were private entertainers on the side as well. So kids dressed well, so we were okay. If you're wondering what private entertainers means, well, it means just what you think it means. If you recall, Inman's mother had sent him back to Adel from Sacramento because of the trouble he was getting into in California. In a police interview, Marquetta said Inman had a bulldog mouth and a chihuahua rear end. Yeah, that's how she really described him. It wasn't long after he moved back to Adel when he and Marquetta's sister, Christy, began seeing each other. I think that they met at the car wash in Adel off of MLK, if I remember that was like this main hangout or drag where everybody would walk or park their car and listen to music at the car wash. And I think maybe she was walking around in her little booty shorts or whatever have you. He was handsome. Yeah. Back then, it was in, in the black community, it was a fad what we called red bones. Red bones were in back then. He was a light-skinned guy, so that was a, a main attraction. So, In at least one written statement and two video interviews, Marquetta told police that Inman had talked to her about robbing a restaurant or a convenience store. On the morning after the Brown murder, she said, Inman showed up with wads of cash, telling the sisters not to ask where the money came from. In one police interview, Marquetta said Inman had a few hundred dollars on him. In a later interview, she said he had at least $1,500. More than $1,700 was stolen from Taco Bell the night of Donna Brown's murder. Marquetta said Inman had told her he'd previously pulled off an armed robbery. Quote, he said he needed money to come up in the drug game, unquote. In the statement she wrote for the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, Marquetta said, in my mind, I believe he did it. I don't believe he acted alone, but I was in no way involved. On the witness stand at Inman's trial, 
Marquetta testified that she had lied repeatedly to police. I was on drugs, so I was probably high, she told the jury. Prosecutor Edson asked Marquetta straight up whether she killed Donna Brown. No, I didn't, she answered. Did you assist Inman? No, I didn't. As he did with Larisha Chapman, Edson then impeached his own witness with an aggressive cross-examination. He challenged her recantation at every turn. He also played one of her videotaped interviews to the jury. On cross-examination by Riles, Marquetta said, I told them the reason I lied was because the GBI had scared me and I felt like they was crooked and they was trying to put me in the case. So I told them the reason why I said those things, to put it on him so it would get off me. I told them that I felt coerced into some of those statements. All these years later, Marquetta gave me a different reason for lying to police. Marquetta said Devanya and Christy had had a terrible fight shortly before Donna Brown's murder. Marquetta said she didn't know what brought it on, but said it was one nasty spat, with cursing, yelling, pushing, and punches being thrown. That was why she lied to police, Marquetta told me. Him being abusive towards my sister, that seed and thought was already planted in my head, like, what can I use to get rid of this guy? I hated him for beating on my sister, and she couldn't stop dealing with him. She wouldn't stop being his girlfriend. So I wanted him completely out of the picture. I asked Marquetta why she decided to take back her initial statements about Inman. Um, I think it was probably after I sat in the county jail waiting to go to prison for my charges about 29 months. So it was sometime in there while I was in county jail that it just hit me like, no, I can't continue with this liar statement. Hearing other people's cases and crimes and what they were facing just all kind of played a part on my mental and emotional, I guess. Regardless, prosecutors didn't buy her recantation. And that's the crazy thing. A lot of people fabricated and made up stuff, but it doesn't seem like anybody is willing to step forward and say, hey, I lied. Like, before the trial went forth, I tried to take my testimony back, my statement. It's like they wouldn't let me. I was like, look, I lied. I made it all up. Oh, no, you didn't. How are you going to tell me? Yes, I did. I made it up. And they just would not accept that. I asked her if she thought Inman could have carried off the murder and armed robbery at Taco Bell. He was a sissy. He was a punk. Excuse my French. He, he never got an altercation with other men or guys. So I say him, a killer murderer, he's too soft for that. So to take somebody's life, that's just, that's impossible to me from him. I just can't see it. Like I said, I really don't know what to make of Marquetta. On the day I interviewed her early this year, there'd been a threat of snow and sleet. I called her that morning and asked her about the condition of the roads where she lived up in North Georgia. Hey, I grew up in Atlanta. Driving on snow and ice, I know my limitations. Marquetta said she wouldn't be out driving in such conditions. But I didn't want to miss the chance to interview her, so off I went. And the roads were completely clear. No sleet, no snow, not even any rain. It really made me wonder. Oh, one more thing about Marquetta. Well into the trial, defense attorney Melinda Riles brought stunning news to Judge Buster McConnell. she just learned that at least one of the jurors had previously had sex with both Marquetta and her sister Christy, who was also going to be a witness at the trial. So they call Marquetta back up to the witness stand and she admitted that she had indeed had sex with that juror at least 10 times. She also offered this reassuring point, but he paid for it each time. 
Christy then took the stand and admitted that the juror had paid her for sex too. But with Inman watching her from the defense table, she said she stopped sleeping with the juror after she started seeing Inman. Then she added reassuringly, she only stripped for him after that. Today, former DA Bob Ellis says it's hard for him to remember a lot of what happened at Inman's trial because it was so long ago. But he does remember this. The moment was riveting because this lady's on the chair and she points to this gentleman sitting on the jury, who I can't tell you whose name it was. Points to the gentleman, she says, I think that uh, I've provided prostitution services for that gentleman. She thought she might recognize him. And the guy went, who, me? He was like this farmer guy. We had to take the jury out and have a talk about it in chambers. And we came back and put him on the witness stand and said, do you know her? I've never had anybody in the course of my practicing law, and I've tried a lot of cases, all kinds of civil and criminal cases, point to somebody in the jury and say they had sex with him. Melinda Riles remembers it too. That was, I, I think, one of those things you just never, ever expect, but it goes to show you, you never know what's going to happen in, the, in a jury trial. When the revelations about the juror having sex with witnesses came out, the trial had been going on for days. Death penalty prosecutions cost a bundle, especially to counties and rural areas, and this development could have derailed the trial. Here's Jesse Sino, the Georgia State law professor. This is just a case where it is just the number of different things going on. Like, you can't keep track of it. It is a, a soap opera where if you were watching this on TV, you would just sit back and say, this would never happen in real life. Now you've got witnesses who are getting ready to testify in this case or have already testified in this case and they're saying oh by the way we have slept with or danced for one or maybe two of the jurors uh that are sitting listening to this case right now you can hear the wheels on the bus screech and stop to a halt at that point because if this is true this could be a mistrial judge mcconnell dismissed the juror who had slept with the women the judge then brought the remaining jurors one at a time to the witness stand. McConnell asked whether the just-dismissed juror had said or done anything that would affect their ability to be fair and impartial. None said that it happened. This was a smart move by Judge McConnell, who was almost certainly thinking about how all this would look on appeal. He had tidied up the matter as best he could, and the trial resumed. One of the state's most important witnesses against Inman was... Kwame Spaulding. Spaulding began his role in the case when he was locked up on drug charges. He sent a note to his jailers asking them to contact the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, or the GBI. He wrote, I might be able to help them solve the case if we can come to some type of an agreement. My roommate told me basically everything. In early 1999, Spaulding read a statement to a GBI video camera. He not only said that Inman confessed to killing Donna Brown, but also strongly suggested that Marquetta Thomas was involved. Spaulding said he and Inman were cellmates when Inman told him all about the killing. He says Vanya and his girlfriend's sister, that'd be Marquetta, had been talking about robbing a Stuckey's gas station where she worked. And here's what Spaulding said about what happened at Taco Bell. He read this same statement aloud to the jury at Inman's trial. Okay, I just met Wayne this Tuesday and this weekend 
we got a little deeper into what had happened with the murder case. He was saying earlier that day he he was hiding in the bushes around Taco Bell and some motels and a truck station was like in that area. Anyway, after someone in Taco Bell told him 12, that they closed at 12 o'clock p.m., he went back to his girlfriend's house and picked up her sister, the one that's in jail now. Here's what Inman said happened in the parking lot, according to Spalding. The next thing you know, Bunyan said he pulled out the 44 caliber and squeezed the trigger. After the shot, the white lady and the girl with Bunyan made a loud scream, and Bunyan said he um, didn't know who he shot, but when he asked the girl with him, she said it hit the bitch in the head or face, but blood was on both the lady and the girl. Then Bunyan said they got the car keys and the money and left the lady in the parking lot. And Bunyan also said he dropped his girlfriend's sister off at his girlfriend's house with all the money and kept joyriding for a little while. And the bag, what the money was in, was left in the car. I should note that the money bag was not found in Donna Brown's car. In fact, it was never recovered. Bunyan jumped out the car and said he he had on a white tank top and black jeans and was checking to see if any blood was on him, but there wasn't. And then he went back to his girlfriend's house and split the money with his girlfriend's sister. He said it was a lot of $20 bills. This was just about as devastating as it sounds. The amount of detail Spalding provided makes you think, where else could he have found this out other than from Inman? Spalding admitted he hoped his cooperation would lead to a good word from the DA to the parole board so he could get out of prison earlier than expected. Here's Michael Williford again. Well, he, I mean, he heard this directly from Devanya, that this was in the cell, just them talking. If I were sitting on a jury listening to a guy say, yeah, this is what he told me in the, in the cell, I mean, that's almost as good as having Devanya admit it on the stand. Williford said his legal training has led him to mistrust jailhouse snitches. But there's no question about it. Prosecutors often use jailhouse snitches as key witnesses, and they routinely get convictions when using them. Snitches are always looking for something in return. In the many years I've covered courts, I've lost track of the number of times I've seen a jailhouse snitch take the stand and point the finger. Some do it because it's the right thing to do. Most do it for reduced prison time. Years ago, I came across an amazing story. I discovered that a select group of prisoners, known as the Dream Team, were being allowed to have sex with their wives and girlfriends in a fourth floor room at the federal courthouse in downtown Atlanta. Yeah, you heard that right. The sexual trysts were called picnics and arranged by law enforcement agents for their prize witnesses in drug prosecutions. I couldn't believe it when I first learned about it in a letter from an inmate who wasn't allowed to have picnics but was housed with the ones who did. He was ratting out the rats, so to speak. To back up his claim, he enclosed in the letter to me a pair of red panties, which were inside a plastic bag, mind you. He said a Dream Team member brought the panties back to prison after a picnic. Seriously, I'm not making this up. All of this was later confirmed by people in the know. 
That was a front-page story, if ever there was one. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut, are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. After Spalding, prosecutors called on law enforcement officials they'd flown across the country from California. These witnesses provided what's called similar transaction evidence the offenses Inman committed before his mother moved him back to Adel. July 1997. Inman was arrested for possessing stolen property, to wit, a Honda Accord. April 1997. Attempted strong-arm robbery outside Mountain Mike's Pizza. Inman explained that he'd mistaken his victim for someone who had stolen his car stereo, and he was just seeking compensation. March 1994. Inman was charged as a juvenile with taking part in the armed robbery of a superb pizza delivery guy. May 1998. Possession of cocaine for sale. A cop stopped Inman's car for bad taillights. Yeah, bad taillights. You know what that means. The officer found 1.06 grams of crack under the passenger seat. So Inman's no choir boy. Far from it. But these similar transactions don't bear much similarity to the Inman murder case. Atlanta lawyer Bud Seaman, who represented Inman on appeal, said the jurors should never have heard about Inman's record in California. The offenses, he said, weren't similar enough. Similar transaction evidence, there's a reason why the state wants to put it in, and that's because it's basically character assassination. They show the jury in Adel, Georgia, They've got this career criminal from California that's moved to Adel and is wreaking havoc. First off, the, the similars really weren't similar. I mean, you, you really have to make a stretch to compare selling drugs with shooting somebody in a parking lot to steal money from them and stealing their car to use as a getaway. Before allowing the testimony from California, Judge McConnell told jurors the law permits such evidence if it is similar in terms of common design, scheme, plan, course of conduct, or motive. Also, if it's connected to the offense for which the defendant is on trial. As Seaman suggests, Inman's record didn't seem to meet that test, but Judge McConnell let it in. Prosecutor Tim Edson tried to demonstrate to the jury that Vanya Inman was a violent, unstable killer. To that end, he put up Maria Clay, a jailer where Inman was being held before the trial. She said Inman completely lost it one day over his jail-issued shoes, and he screamed at her, I'll f***ing kill you next, bitch. An unambiguous threat to commit extreme violence, and the idea was simple. According to Clay, Inman said he'd kill her next, so the clear implication, he must have killed someone else first. The prosecution saved Virginia Tatum for the end of its case, one of its final witnesses. Tatum was a newspaper delivery person waiting on bundles of the Valdosta Daily Times at about 2 a.m. the night of Donna Brown's murder. She said she saw two cars barreling across the bridge over I-75. She said they turned right in front of her and were going so fast, they fishtailed. The dust flew up. They swerved. Tatum said the lead car, Donna Brown's black Monte Carlo, passed just three feet from her. I could have stepped out and touched that car if I wanted to, she testified. Now, imagine a car moving past you in the dark. It's there, it's gone. 
How much detail could you see? Here's what Virginia Tatum said she saw. Only one person was inside the Monte Carlo. He was a black man with very short hair. Quote, he had a goatee and his sideburns and goatee came together. He had on a white muscle-type tank top. It was ribbed. He was close enough. I could see the ribbing in his shirt. He also had a gold necklace on, maybe a diamond-studded earring, and he had dark trousers, unquote. Now that's a lot of detail. Tatum said the trailing car held three people, two black men in the front and a woman in the back. The woman was African-American and had short, platinum blonde hair and glasses. Who could that blonde-haired woman have been? Well, at the time, none other than Marquetta Thomas dyed her hair blonde and wore glasses. Tatum identified Inman from a police photo lineup. She paused over Marquetta's photo in another lineup with other blonde-haired black women. I thought it was her, Tatum said. As for Inman, Tatum told the jury, it was very easy to see into the car and see him. Very easy. I'll never forget for the rest of my life what he looks like. His face will be etched in my memory forever. This was extremely damaging testimony for Inman. But defense attorney David Perry had what I thought was a very effective cross-examination. Why did you wait for more than a month after the murder to call police about this, Perry wondered. Tatum acknowledged that she knew the following day there'd been a murder at the Taco Bell. She also said she saw police cars racing over the bridge that evening. That didn't register with you for a month that there might have been some kind of connection between the cars speeding back from that direction and the police cars speeding toward that direction? Perry asked. No, Tatum answered. Then... Perry pulled out Defense Exhibit Number 5. It was an October 21, 1998 edition of the Adel News. The front page news that day? A $5,000 reward had been posted for information leading to the arrest of Donna Brown's killer. Tatum admitted that she first called police just a few days after reading the story, but she said the reward had nothing to do with it. She told the jury, This woman died, and she had a son. I have children of my own. I cannot live with the idea to think that someone took this boy's mother from him for a robbery. Perry countered, Wasn't she just as dead that next day? Perry also challenged Tatum on what she said she saw. He got her to admit that there was enough space to park two cars between the place where she stood and where Donna Brown's Monte Carlo sped by. Here's Perry. That'd be two 18-inch wide cars because you were three feet away from the street? Have you ever seen a car that was 18 inches wide? No, Tatum answered. Here are Michael Williford and Maida Muhich sharing their views on Tatum's testimony. I'm just looking at these, these words and his tank top t-shirt was ripped. He was close enough I could see the ribbing in his shirt. It was very easy to see into the car and see him very easy. I'll never forget the rest of my life what he looks like. His face will be etched in my memory forever. I mean, this is like bad television. <laughs> I believe he had on dark trousers. It, I mean, I don't know how you know that. When somebody's sitting in a car, and you're under, it's just, the details are so, they're so specific. And especially if they're going by in a car, you're not going to. It's just, it's so impossible. When I showed up at her house in July 2017, Virginia Tatum wasn't thrilled to see me. But she did speak with me. She said her testimony was completely accurate. She did claim the reward but that had nothing to do with her decision to testify, she said. 
You'll hear a lot more from her in episode three. So, after calling more than two dozen witnesses, the prosecution rested. Next on Breakdown, a man named Hercules and a stunning revelation about the up-to-no-good mask. She calls me to tell me they found the mask. And they found the mask in a cardboard box in the clerk's office. And my first thought was, is I looked in that cardboard box and it wasn't there. Breakdown was reported and narrated by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. Sound design by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative. Original Breakdown theme music composed and performed by Bo Emerson and Billy Guin. Additional music composed and performed by Chris Basta and Chris Nicholson, a.k.a. C1 and C2. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Bert Roten, Monica Richardson, Bo Emerson, Melanie Stolte, and all the great folks at the AJC, Buddy Hall, Chris Nicholson, Jesse Sino, Michael Williford, Maida Muhich, and Lynn Taylor. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.